Hey, kia ora, everybody. Welcome to the Invisible Sensei podcast. I hope you're well. I hope you're locked down, or rather, your imposed time of reflection is going well. Here in New Zealand or Aotearoa, we have dropped down to level three. So, four was a complete lockdown. Three, we've got some movement. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that um, we're able to train in dojo as, as usual, but there's some fantastic stuff happening online. It's actually been really cool to see what's been going on. Uh, thanks also to all the well wishes for my 100th podcast. Really appreciated that. And don't forget you can get us, if I'm interviewing someone or talking to someone or you have further questions, I always try to put a connection in the description. So please take time to, if you feel that something resonates with you, get hold of that instructor and let them know. Also, feel free to leave a comment. We're on Instagram at Invisible Sensei and on our Facebook page, the Invisible Sensei Podcast. Now, we thought that's all the cheap, that's all the cheap, um... (laughs) A commercial's done. Now I want to talk about this week's guest, if we may. So, one of the things that happens with karate, I think, and one of the things that I enjoy the most, and it's been really rewarding, is the people that you meet through the practice. Now, you may come from different places, different cultures, different ways of, different religions, different practices, but I think when you have something like karate, we all suffer from the same weaknesses and when I say weaknesses I'm talking about bad knees, bad back, bad hips. Um, if you can make it to 50 without a hip without a hip replacement you're doing really well um, and I think my guest today really il- illustrates that karate really does overcome boundaries. Uh, he has traveled extensively all over the world training with lots of different people purely for the fact that he loves karate. Uh, he trains at the some people train at the stream, well he trains at the well in Okinawa. Um, I'll let him talk a little bit more about himself, but uh, Murray Simpson Sensei, I had the pleasure of meeting him and uh, sending Harry, Sense, uh, Harry Sensei last year at the Gorju Guys seminar. And you know, I was so amazed that um, someone who is himself so advanced, doing so much in all the different realms of karate, both in the sporting element, I guess the shiai element, uh, the shtair element and also doing the goju, goju dento and that traditional goju um, would take time to come to some seminar in the middle of Wainui Mata, the little Wainui Mata. But one of the cool things was I had some time to spend with him and really enjoyed the conversation, the insight and the support. And um, yeah, it's been an amazing travel. I'm really thankful that he's taken time. We're going to soldier through with a bad internet connection. Um, I hope Sensei that um, the $6.5 million that I've um, put into your bank account um, this morning will um, will help uh, overcome that difficulty, make it a little less, make, make the medicine go down a little easier and um, will, will help me in my drive to get 25th done. So hey guys, welcome please uh, Sensei Murray Simpson. Welcome Sensei. Well, thank you for inviting me to Rara Sensei. Mm-hmm. Must bring, I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, uh, it's well, interesting. I still haven't received that money. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a you know checks checks are a, are, are a bugger. Yeah. You know, it's in the mail. <laughs> I I I remember sending it on the forty uh, fifth of November. <laughs> it might be post dated. <laughs> so since they yeah, you picked that hundred years. So. Um, 
One of the things which intrigues me, Sensei, about your practice, and we're going to start, I guess, sort of at the beginning, is that you seem to, in the modern world of karate, there seems to be a lot of division. Um, you have practitioners who really focus on the sport, you have practitioners who focus on the traditional, you have practitioners who focus on, I guess, lineage and, and those sorts of things. Um, and it, it's very rare that those things meet also your kobudo lineage. I mean, so you're combining uh, training young young fighters and, and athletes, karate athletes, traditional karate, kobudo, and traveling back and forth to Okinawa and um, meeting lots of people all over the world who, does, who do and love karate. So let's start um, kind of in the now and then we'll work our way backwards. So in terms of your view and your many international travels, where do you think... How do you, what's your feelings about the state of karate um, just in general? I mean, not just in New Zealand, but just in your travels, you would have seen a lot of variants. Oh, look, um, in my experience in, in traveling to different countries and, and teaching and, and meeting people, there's um, quite a big vacuum in information that, that some have, particularly in some of those um, uh, not well-off countries. Mm. Um, they've been exposed to karate. Um, they have not really been supported that well. Um, now, there are obviously exceptions to that. Um, and one of the things that has attracted me to engage with them is actually connecting them to Okinawa, the home of karate. Okay, So they actually get the soul of karate. Um, there has been, as you'll know, a, a big push in respect of sport karate, and, and that's fine, but to me, it misses the essence of karate. Um, and, you know, while it's good for young people, the reality is, is that if you focus on sport karate, then your involvement in karate will basically finish when you get to um, early 30s maybe later, but, but basically around that time. Um, and that's not what karate is for. You know, you, you go to Okinawa and you see all these old people who practice karate. It is their way of life, it is their culture. Um, and I suppose that's why you and I are still kicking around doing karate in our later years, is that we see it as something more than just um, an activity. Mm. Okay, it's, mm. it's sort of what defines us. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's one of the, the um, reasons of engaging with, with a lot of these people is to, to try and um, introduce them to that element of it. Mm. Oh, that's awesome, Sensei. Um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, like there's a, lot of, there's a lot in there. I mean, you're covering a lot of bases in terms of talking about... I guess um, we're both Okinawa and Gojuru Karate practitioners. So I guess having talked a bit about where you feel things are at and what your mission is now, let's talk a little bit about your formative stages. I mean, we have got a couple of people in common. Um, and the, one of the things that I'm calling this podcast is um, an interview with Sensei Murray Simpson. And I've entitled it The Straight Path. And you've had a pretty consistent path from the beginning of your, of your training. Um, I know few people 
that I can have a conversation that uh, I walk away and go, man, that guy likes karate way more than I do. Um, but you're one of those people. How did you start Sensei and how did it go from being this, I guess, maybe you started as a pastime or, or, or as a sport. How did it go from that to being just a, a lifetime pursuit for you? Well, I suppose, like a lot of people around my age and, and so <laughs> forth, obviously in the 70s we got exposed to, you know, Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris and all those things, and it looked really cool. Um, at that time, I was really interested in it, but I was very active in other sports and doing very, very well at a, at a, at a, at a national level. Um, it was not until I actually moved to Dunedin and um, that's down the lower part of New Zealand and um, I had, I suppose, got a bit tired of, of doing those traditional sports that we were doing um, and I decided I'd give karate a go and I saw an advert and I went along to a dojo that was run by uh, Sensei Bob Cahill and in those days it was it was Go Jeru. It had recently, I suppose, quite a few, a few years earlier, that transferred over from Kokushin. So the training in those days was actually quite hard. There was a lot of focus on uh, a lot of repetitive basics. Um, and when we fought, um, it was pretty intense. It was good fun. As a young lad, you bounced back from the bruises. But what I, I liked about it then was that we did train hard. You know, um, yes, the snow fell outside and we opened up all the windows and um, it was bloody cold and you just had to train hard. And, and I was at a stage where that was good for me, okay? I, I enjoyed that, that um, consistently hard training. We had some very good teachers back in those days for doing that sort of thing. Um, and I progressed quite quickly because I put a lot of time in. I, mean, I used to train seven days a week and often I'd do two classes a night, okay? I would run to the dojo, which would be about three and a half K. I would train for three to four hours and then run back home. And I do that almost every night a week, okay? Um, and as I progress through the um, ranks, um, you know, you realize that there was more to it than just punching and kicking, okay? And that's what really attracted me. You, you can see that there was more to it. Uh, I got exposed to some very good teachers early on, which, which inspired me. Um, and, and and that was good. And the atmosphere in those days was also, it was good, it was fair, it was hard, um, but we had good relationships in and out of the dojo. Um, and those experiences in Dunedin were, were very formative and very strong. Um, and of course, as we progressed through that stage, um, the dojo that I was in um, was Sensei Bob Cahill, merged with the dojo that uh, Sensei Laurie Scott had, which made us stronger. So we, we had um, a lot of very good black belts back in those days. 
that that um, kept you honest. Um, I distinctly remember sometimes that we would get to a stage where the dojo would get too full. So instead of doing a normal class of a bit of kihon, a bit of kicks and stuff like that, it was just basically an hour and a half of fighting. And then see who could come back next week. All right? So yeah, there was a bit of blood on the floor, there was a bit of broken noses and cut lips and stuff like that. But um, when you're in your mid-twenties and stuff like that, that, that was all good fun, mm. right? Um, work hard, play hard. Yeah, it was very good. <laughs> you know, um, can I just ask a question? I got one. Can I just, sorry, yeah. sorry, since there's a lag, so sorry, sorry, dear listeners. Um, I remember, um, guys, like, I remember Sensei Kahul, and I remember him taking me for, well, heading up a grading for me when I was, oh God, I must have been about 11 or something at the old San Andrew Street Dojo Sensei. And I remember at the time, I didn't know what yes. Yame meant. So we were doing um, sit-ups as part of the grading. I didn't know what Yame meant. And he walked over to me and he goes, I was doing sit-ups because they told us to do sit-ups. And he goes, Yame, which I, for some reason, interpreted as go harder. So, and you know, Sensei Kahul, I mean, back in those days, he's a fairly, he's a very, fairly imposing figure. And uh, unless I guess you knew him well, probably as you did, he didn't smile an awful lot. That was my experience. <laughs> so he was kind of intimidating. So I think I gave myself a hernia trying to do more and more sit-ups. And he came over and says, yummy, yummy, yummy. And he had to come over finally, slap me on the back of the head and say, stop. <laughs> I, I, and I also remember people like Chris McMahon and people of that era. For me, these were all these kind of giants of karate at that time. So your 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 in the you're training seven days a week when did it when did you think god i could actually just get, was it a straight off thing since they thinking yeah i can continue i can do this i can do this for the rest of my life was there any thought of that did it just why did it speak to you after playing all the other sports that you'd you'd um been a part of um look i, I, I suppose it's a hard one because um it is something that I suppose is individual to 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 the person. Um, I have always been involved in a mix of team sports and individual sports. So I, I did swimming, so we, we always um, used to doing lots of long hours looking at the bottom of the pool, uh, and and that 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 routine was ingrained in me quite early on. And, and again, you know, that was a seven day a week activity. Playing soccer, that was another four or five day a week activity. Um, so, but, but soccer was quite different to the environment you get in swimming and in, in karate, which is a very personal thing. So that, that, that obviously attracted to me, pushing yourself harder and, and going, um, uh, strong as long as you can um, just to build yourself up um, there was a, a huge raft of information that you had to try and absorb and get good at so you know just learning all those techniques trying to get good at it the timing all those things that that, that was um yeah that, that was just good challenging fun um as a young lad um, and of course you're at an age and stage where Doing those sorts of activities, particularly back in, in, in the 80s and stuff like that, was um, you saw that as 
very macho, very, very thing to do when you're a young lad. Um, not that I got into things that, that were sort of, um, hey, let's go and have a big bash up on a Saturday or Friday night, but it was just something that, that um, appealed to me at that, at that stage. Obviously things changed later on. Um, you, you get out of that macho sort of mentality and start to engage brain a bit better rather than brawn. Um, so yeah, it was just something that attracted to me. Um, and, and as you, you've said, you know, there were um, some very good senseis who set very good examples, um, not just in the way that they trained and, and what they expected from you, but also the example they set outside the dojo. They were very supportive, very um, encouraging, and interested in what you were doing and how you were progressing. So their, their, their interest was genuine. Um, and, and they're just damn good people to be with. Mm. Mm. So yeah. it was just a great environment. Yeah, I, I think um, for me, since I mean, um, for those people who are listening in places like Canada and America and those sort of places, you've got to understand uh, maybe a little geography lesson in terms of um, where. Uh, Dunedin is so Dunedin is referred to as the Edinburgh of the south of the south of the South Island about three quarters of the way um, down the South Island of New Zealand so we're made up of three islands north south and a small island called Stewart Island or uh, in Māori, uh, Māori Tika Māui, Māui Te um, uh, Waipainamu and um, uh, Lakiura that's how you say it in Māori but um Dunedin is kind of is a is, is a place as a rare breed, and is actually where I was born and spent quite a few years um, growing up until my early until my early teens. Uh, but there's a kind of a heartiness to the folk down there. They take a lot of pride in their Scottish heritage. Um, it's bloody cold. It's bloody cold, but it's a beautiful part of the country. But there's a, a real thing. There's a real hearty. Um, she'll be right mate uh, southern man mentality to anything and everything that they do down there so if you get a chance just um, punch in Dunedin which I understand is Gaelic for castle on the hill but um, Sensei how long did it take you to get sure done and I, like I, I, when I talk uh, to people okay. I, okay yeah so I started in Jesus coming back a while now but I think it was about 84 um, and I got my show down in 1986 wow. in, in July at the camp and I was graded by Moro Higuana. Wow. Wow. If you're going to get your black belt, I mean, if you want to get your black and gorgeous, um, Higuana Sensei is a really good person to have a name on the certificate. That'll, that'll, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I should um, I should also say that the reason that I ask about Shodan grading sensei is because that to me it seems to me when I talk to people that that is one of those benchmark gradings. Do you have a particular recollection about that grading? Um, yeah, I've, I've very distinct um, memories about that because all our gradings back in those days were were um, very hard, and and I've since spoken to to some senseis about. Some of the stuff we used to do, um, particularly all the kamite at the end, um, and you know we we did, we did a lot of kamite, and and if you couldn't do strong kamite, then basically you failed. So you had to survive, and 
I distinctly recall um, in that particular grading that um, because I was a reasonably good fighter in those days, I mean, I had to be, otherwise you'd, 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 you'd get taught to be good one way or the other. Um, and, and I distinctly remember that as I was doing reasonably well, there was um, gradually an increase in the grade of person I was fighting against. And back in those days, we used to have a nice, healthy, friendly rivalry between those ones from the upper part of the North Island, those from the central part, and the rest of us down in the South Island. And as soon as one person from your neighbourhood got the wallop, you sort of had the um, obligation to sort of hit the offending person back, shall we say. So one of my good friends got smashed up against the wall by some knee down from upper hut, actually. And I happen to have them next. So I then sort of politely slapped him around a bit, um, only then to start no longer getting um, showdowns, knee downs, and starting to get sundowns from that area trying to get me back. And then eventually Hagawana Sensei noticed this and started to say, look, no, 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 only showdowns, knee downs, mm. right? And that's the sort of environment we had. It was a good, friendly environment sometimes it did get out of hand. People got knocked out. People got broken legs or broken arm or, or a few teeth missing. Um, so you had to be good. Mm. I would probably suggest back in those days there was an overemphasis on um, that hard fighting style, which was an overhang from Kokushin, um, and, and less on um, technical ability. And, and how good your technique was. There were, there were quite a few people who were uh, senior at that time who were just hard men. They were hard men. You know, they, they liked to hit things. Um, they didn't hit it with any finesse. It was just bash it type <laughs> mentality. Okay. Um, but that was that was very formative, and and it's good to see that you know, we gradually evolved from that. But that was what was happening back in those days. Mm. If you couldn't fight, um, you were basically, you failed. Regardless of how good your kata, your basic techniques were or whatever, if you couldn't stand up and stand your own, then, yeah. Mm. So, with that sensei, it's interesting because I often wonder, because um, I had uncles who trained um, uh, with Java sensei. So just to give a little bit of a history lesson, dear listener, uh, Sensei John Jarvis was the Shibucho for many years for Kyokushinkai in the um, Asia-Pacific region. He, le- he then decided that his path lay in another direction and joined uh, Gojuru under Higawana Sensei, Moru Higawana Sensei. And um, there were many people in and throughout that time, I guess, that chose to um, stay with Kyokushin. Uh, some, and many people migrated to... Uh, Gorjuru, and I know for me with Sensei Laurie Scott was was one was my main teacher. Um, there were some definite hangovers in terms of the way that we trained from Kyokushin because I'd done Kyokushin, obviously I'd done Kyokushin as a kid, but um, the hard hard work on on Kihon, the hard work on basics, the lots and lots of line training, and really strong kumite were really big factors. And I often wondered. 
and you can give me your thoughts here and say whether or not was that is that the way Gorjuru was, or was that a, a, a hangover from having come from a hard fighting style like Kyokushin? What what were your thoughts on why that was? Um, I definitely believe there was a big hangover from Kokushin. Um, obviously, they they adopted stuff from Goju, and Kokushin adopted quite a lot of stuff from Koku, from Goju as well. Mm. Um, um, but. There was definitely a big overhang from um, Kokushin, particularly the way that the, even some of the techniques were being performed and stuff like that, okay? Um, and it, it wasn't really until quite a bit later going into, I suppose, late 80s, early 90s, when that, that transformation really started to take, take hold. So there's early days in, in, in late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, there was still a distinct overhang of, of Kokushin and in the way that whole mentality was about um, how, how we did karate. And we did, on reflection, some really silly stuff, which we now know was not great for the body. Mm. It was great for building um, strength, but was not good on the joints, mm. um, and and luckily I didn't suffer from that sort of stuff, mm. like I know some others had. Mm. Um, so yeah, there was a distinct overhang, definitely. And, and let, let's just sort of be clear about the one where we say overhang. We're not talking about hangover. Um, for me, I, I guess. One of the things that I really appreciate about those formative years was that hard training mentality. Probably like yourself, Sensei. I mean, you were far by far and away senior to me at that time. I was just a kid. But um, one of the things that I always enjoyed was that I think that that built spirit. Um, but what I also liked was I know for us the focus on you know we'd have the strong kihon and the and the and uh, lots of nandori, and, but also the focus on kata, the focus on, I don't know how well we were doing, oh well I don't know how well I was doing kata, I think I was on maybe Gekusai, Dutch Gekusai Dane at the time and thinking I was a master, but I, I remember the way in which, you know, senior Gojuru sensei of the day would really break down the kata in a way that I'd never seen before. Um, during your formative training, Sensei, was Bunkai a huge part of it? Was it sort of something you did to get through grading? Was it actually even a part of grading? Was it something you guys spent you spent a lot of time on, or did that come later? Okay, um, I think that really evolved more later. Um, at that stage, we had standard Kihon sets that we did, and and. Yeah, we now learn later on that a lot of those sets were actually um, developed by Turiyo Chinan Sensei. Mm. Um, and so our focus at that stage was just doing hard, strong, and, 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 and bashing. So there was a, in that regard, there was a strong flavor by Mario Higawana and, and Kokushin in that. And I suppose where things started to change for me was when I got the contrast of training with Turiyo Chinan Sensei. It was almost like, Mario Hingawana is Go mm. and Chinan Sensei is Ju, right? Mm. Hard soft. So there, there was this blend that that started to open up my eyes about 
how applications, how techniques could be applied. Um, it wasn't just about smashing something. There was a little bit more finesse about it. Um, and that's when I suppose, personally, I started to look more at how things can be interpreted and applied. Okay. Um, there was more to Goju Karate than what I was experiencing up until that time. And, and that was now coming into the, the late 80s when Turio Chinon first visited New Zealand. Uh, and I travelled around New Zealand with him, with, with the group that, that travelled around and finished up in, in, in Dunedin. And, and that was very, um, very informative. And, and very transform, transforming for me from a um, goju karate perspective. Mm. Mm. Um, for me, I mean, I was lucky in the uh, 90s to be able to spend some time training with uh, Sensei Chinon um, a few times in New Zealand and then to go up and train in Spokane. Uh, with him, and unfortunately, uh, for those of you who don't know Tiro Chinon Sensei, um, quite a a person who was a what I would term now as a man in my late forties as a karate I want to say what is it they call you crazy when you're when you're poor but they call you um, when you're rich they describe you as an eccentric sensei could be very very eccentric and I'm not I don't mean to say this but his way of doing kata was quite different I mean for us we'd always tried to emulate Higawana sensei and the difference with Chinon sensei it seemed that his karate was a little bigger and he was more about um, he just had a different flavor which I know for me certainly gelled gelled with me now um, but we're not talking about me we're talking about you sensei so I just want to maybe cut um, to you were um, ensconced in, in uh, the OGKF and all the rest of that and the karate and where has that passed since that time how have you so now you're a student of uh, Kichi Nakamoto Sensei in Okinawa um, you're doing Kobudo Karate all of these things what was the travel for you to get to that place, I imagine it's about evolution, not not so much about um, they had nothing for me and I okay. outgrew them. Yeah, so during the nineties, I actually took a break from karate. I was um, heavily involved in my career as as a chartered accountant and then starting up business, young family. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, I suppose, turmoil that went on while I was away, uh, and, I, and I said that before that, during the 80s, I just trained, I, I didn't worry about any of that stuff, I just trained, I didn't even grade out to get my black belt, I just, just trained, it wasn't, wasn't, there was no interest to me, right? Then when I came back in basically 2000, I, um, I had some um, three young boys and I still belonged to, to Karate, and I had previous experience with um, Dennis May Sensei and, and, and at that stage uh, Gerard Jackson who had a, a dojo that was um, closest to me. So I just went along there and, and reintroduced myself into Goju. Now at that stage we were part of um, OGKK, 
um, which was the Ichi Miyazato group. And so, obviously, it was, a, it was some interest to me. Well, what happened? We were previously under Mario Higawana Sensei, and then now we're under um, uh, Koshiniha Sensei, um, under, her, under what was Miyazato's organization. And there obviously became some sort of transformation issue when I first came in there because we were now going back to how it was done in the Jundakan Dojo. So we progressed through with, um, with that group all the way through till um, early 2010, it's about 2012, when um, Dennis May Sensei decided to move from um, OGKK to joining um, Kichi Nakamoto Hunchi, okay, and, and who's now, I have, I have direct affiliation with them. So, but obviously, from my point of view, it was important maintaining that, that strong link through that Miyazato lineage and, and, and keeping um, conformity with what I already knew. Obviously, there's certain differences between those those, those groups, but um, yeah, that, that's really cosmetic. Um, so yeah, so I've I've and it's only been in the last, I suppose, four or five years that you that you've really start to look at the roots of your karate and how it's um, progressed through. Um, the I, I have a strong affinity with um, a smaller um, group like we have with Okinawan Khan, where everyone's treated um, the same, regardless of grade. Uh, there's no real hierarchical structure you deal with. It's just Nakamoto, who's who's the head, almost like a, a grandfather. And then you have everyone else who's, who's um, at different stages of their development. So it's a really family feel, and, and I like that. Um, when we were in OGKK, that was very structured organisational-wise. Um, so yeah, that, that's been my, my journey through with um, Goju. During those phases, I had the pleasure of training with quite a number of, of very senior Goju masks, particularly in the OGKK groups. They've got um, a lot of very senior Goju um, instructors. Um, so yeah, you, you learned a lot from um, those people who've been doing karate since the 1950s. Mm. 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 Uh, one of the things which is really unique to me since we're just we're just getting over halfway, and there's so much I want to get get through. So this might have to be part one, but um, <laughs> we're not even a, we're not even a fourth of the way through uh, the story. But we'll, we'll, we'll push on. Um, since you, uh, one of the things which I really appreciate about your approach, from from my experience of from what I've seen you do, is that you also have a strong. Um, emphasis, well not emphasis, you, you also have a strong practice of kobudo. Um you have, seem to have I know you do a lot of the ruidu kata and things like that there seems to be quite a broad spectrum of um, 
influences and, and things that you bring to the dojo while, while keeping it extremely traditional. So how did Kobudo enter the scene and how do you feel that it impacts your personal study or just training in general? What is it, what's, what's some of the good elements of Kobudo for you? Okay, um, so my first exposure to Kabuto was in, in, in the mid-1980s. Um, and we used to, for want of a better term, play with Kabuto. Uh, we knew absolutely nothing, but we thought we knew heaps. And, and we just basically swung weapons around and it was all good fun. Uh, but we had no real, shall we say, formal training. Um, then... It wasn't until I came back to, to karate in, in the early 2000s that um, I had contact with uh, Derek English Sensei, who had come back from Okinawa and had been doing Kabuto. And we were introducing students here in Auckland to that. Uh, we were not really encouraged to do that, but we did it anyway. Um, so it was an interest of me, and, and we did that for a while until I suppose the tensions got a little bit hot about doing that. Um, it was not a good idea to cross the reservation line, if you like to put it that way. Um, so we put that on the back burner. Then obviously when we affiliated with Okinawan Khan and Kabuto was part of, of that syllabus, um, yeah, I got into it, okay? I, I liked it. Um, I wish I could have more time to learn more. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so it has been something that's always been there in the background. Um, I like weapons from the point of view, it's one, it, it, it shows up terribly your um, inaccuracies and control of um, a technique so <laughs> you swing the bow and you think you're going to have good kiwi but we're not it's just waving around all over the place okay so from that point of view it, it helps to improve your motor function control your um, coordination of um, biomechanical movement and muscular control okay so um, I find that side of things has benefited karate. Uh, also, the thing is, if you want the weapon to do what you want, you can't be all stiff at the board and strong like we used to do karate back mm. in the 80s, mm. right? Just be tough. You've got to, as, as I keep on getting reminded by my uh, Kabuto teachers, let the weapon do the work, mm. all right? Um, so that has been very helpful with my karate as well. Um, obviously from um, other aspects you're dealing with understanding uh, distancing a lot better. Mm. Um, more appreciative of, of distance. Um, so it just improves awareness and, and from a person who has been doing karate for some 30 odd years, it's, it's sort of reinvigorated interest in martial arts. Mm. You've got another challenge to take on, another another uh, set of skills to to work on. So you know that that just yeah just goes to show you've got 
so much more still to learn mm-hmm. and not enough time. Yeah, I, I think that with um, one of the things with um, I've had um, English Sensei has been kind enough to be on the podcast and I um, train with him on a, on a fairly regular basis and, and I think for me one of the things that I really appreciate about him and you is with seeing Kobudo as another as another part of karate or even though it is a study unto itself I think that it's a really healthy expression of what karate could be especially for me I know like you were talking about you know us in our advanced years and say men of men of our vintage shall we say um, I find that the study of Kobudo just in my own training it just enlivens the training as you were saying it, it, it also works on a different energy in the sense that it's not as it's taxing to be sure but it's also it, it's um it enlivens the karate as well because it doesn't smash the body as much as doing remember knuckle push-ups and bunny bunny hops around the dojo with 40 kilos on your shoulders all those wonderful exercises from back in the day so um for me sensei no i really appreciate that and i remember i um, met the goju guy seminar uh harry sensei doing um Senna sensei rather doing a um being kind enough to demonstrate some sai and bokhat and it was beautiful to watch and I think that in, for me what inspires me is like you were saying at the beginning you know Okinawa is a place where people are the longest lived in the world there's a reason why in terms of lifestyle diet and outlook why they're the longest lived people in the world I mean I'm sure karate is in there in, in, in there uh, somewhere but you know I'm hoping to live to a hundred and you know a hundred and ninety eight so that's maybe that's a good start for us sensei yeah, well, one of the things that one of the um, senior senseis pointed out to me at, at, at our Hombu Dojo was, was that the younger ones will do more karate. The older ones will do more kabuto um, for the very reason that it, that it is less taxing on the body, but still gives you the movement and, and everything else that goes with it. So um, there is that sort of, well, seems to be that relationship within our group Mm. Um, that the older ones will be doing more kabuto and not as much um, karate. And, and it's great to have those choices, all right? Um, you, and this is the thing you learn by necessity as you get older, mm. <laughs> you do what you can, as best you can. <laughs> and you start finding that range starts to limit a little bit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it, and, uh, it's nice to say, you go. Yeah, and, 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 and if that means transitioning more to Kabuto, um, great, as long as you're still being active. Yeah, I, I, I notice um, when you're talking about, I notice there's a serious lack of back somersaults and cartwheels in your geeks like Kata these days, and so, so yeah, that's a bit disappointing if I'm being totally honest. Um, <laughs> what I want to, um, what I want to move to now, if we may, we're kind of jumping around, guys, and I do apologise, but I just want to. Um, um, that six point five million dollars will only get us so far. So, um, since you're a on the other, I guess other side of the coin or the other side of the Rubik's cube, you're also a national judge for Qatar, and you um, travel around the world with that. Um, and I'm intrigued. For me, I have to be honest and say that I tended towards. Um, I did had a go at point tournament, but I was t- at the at the point tournament stuff, and I was always terrible at it. 
I, I you know you know me I'm you know six four so I'm a bit of a target I'm easily hit and I don't move forward very fast but once I get momentum up you better step aside um, but one thing one thing which intrigues me about kata is um, in a sense um, you know people look up you know the whole thing about having kata lists and things like that is kind of um, an interesting notion to me but in general terms sensei when you watch someone oh, we had this interesting discussion and, and it was after I said to you I'd seen a brown belt doing super empe. and for those people who don't practice um, gojuri karate um, super empe is probably the highest kata in the syllabus um, for most um, iterations of the style and I sort of said to Sensei, what, what will you what will you think about it? So, give as, as that is a springboard, Sensei, you, you at a tournament see a brown belt doing a kata of that level. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts in general about, what are you looking for as a judge uh, for kata, just in general terms? Okay, so <coughs> um, just, just to set the record straight, I'm no longer a national judge. I've resigned from that um, position over certain um, politics things but I'll still give you my view on it Mm. Um, there is an unhealthy trend within sport karate for students to feel the necessity to do kata that is too high for their level of development and their age okay And, and the competition environment has created that unhealthy situation and you can't avoid it because the reality is is that unfortunately for a lot of judges, if you go out there and you perform a higher kata, Sumprempai, or even Kurumpa, or Anan, or anything like that, there is a tendency for them to give it good votes. Okay? And this is one of the reasons why I'm, I've decided I, I can no longer judge because when I was put in that environment, I would be honest and I'd give them a really crappy score. That was it, because it was a very average to poor Carter. And I'm not interested in what level of Carter they're doing, I'm interested in the performance. And particularly if you're doing a Goju Carter in front of me mm. and you're from some other style, mm. then I'm sorry, but you're not meeting the criteria of a Goju Carter and you will get a bad score. Mm. That's it. Now the fact is, I give a low score and it doesn't count because it gets dropped off. All right. But um, and then this is the unfortunate thing that that competition karate develops is this unhealthy desire just to do a performance because it's a higher character and therefore it simply becomes a dance performance. Okay. And, and, and that is, to me, is unhealthy. It's lost the essence of karate. Um, now, some of them can still do quite a good performance relative for their age and their ability, but that does not make it a good kata. Mm. Okay. Um, unfortunately, because I have to train some members to compete internationally and nationally. I have to put aside my personal judgment about that mm. and say, well, if they want to succeed at that level, they have to conform with the expectations in that environment. And, and, and 
You can sit and say, but you've now compromised your own integrity. Yes, I have. But I have to do that for those students who want to achieve their goals. Mm. Well, it's not about me, it is about them. Mm. Um, when I look at cast performance, I'm, I think I'm different to quite a few of the judges. I focus on stance, the foundation. Okay? And whereas a lot of other people will just look at the hands and go, oh, that looks really good. But to me, if your foundation is weak, doesn't matter what you do with your hands and everything else, um, it, it becomes almost meaningless. Mm. Now, that's where I focus, but I don't, I don't, I don't only look at that. I look at um, the, the movement. Uh, is the movement biomechanically correct? Mm. At the end of the day, we've all got the same body. It all works the same way. Is the movement being done to generate the power into the technique? And unfortunately, a lot of times, the movement that's being done is, how say it, is, is a veneer, mm. okay? Mm. It looks good, mm. but beneath it is just all rubbish, mm. okay? There's a whole lot of um, structural issues that are, that are wrong with what they're doing. Uh, and it, it becomes hard because if you're in that environment, you'll get, you'll see these things all the time and you'll start to accept that as being okay. And that is the danger when you get into that environment. Um, my environment, my my heart and soul in karate is traditional karate. Mm. That's mm. my interest. I will assist my students in sport karate because I think that is good for the younger ones to help encourage them. They, they, they need that. But there is a, a, a yeah an unfortunate trend in sport karate about karate about kata becoming a an athletic dance performance, not a martial art. Yeah, I, I think with that sense, you know, like it's very interesting. I mean, I, I was reflecting um, to my partner the other day how, you know, um, when you came to our place um, during the seminar and um, you and um, Senan Sensei came and we had this conversation, it was really interesting to hear that because I suppose for me, I, I've always been one of those people who deals in absolutes. I've gone, well, you know, um, you know, it, it, it either is or it isn't, and it's a real nice, I think, until I met you in um, Senen Sensei, I didn't know if those two two things, the love of the traditional karate and, uh, and um, the sporting aspect of it could live side by side, but I think you, you balance it really nicely. I think that, for me, the success of any student is also dependent upon the culture that you create within the dojo and I think it speaks a lot about your students. I mean, you've got a lot of students. Um, and, and, and for people who are listening over, over in other countries, um, New Zealand is, is a very small country. Our, our entire population would be um, probably the size of a small provincial American city. So we're not even, I think we're like four point something million people. I mean, we might be lucky just to make the five. Um, so the people, the, 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 
proportion of, of people doing karate is is um, in it's quite I don't want to say low but you can you get an idea how diverse our sporting activities are because New Zealand is clearly um, for the most part a rugby <laughs> a rugby nation you know it's kamate kamate and all the rest of that with the all blacks and so on and so forth uh, sensei I want to change we've got um, just under 10 minutes and I want to switch to something which is I think uh, is a really important aspect of it um, in this little bit of time that we have left and that is one of what well, I entitled this my interview with you this morning the straight path and one of the things that you have always been really vocal about and one of the things that probably people have found challenging about your perspective um, <laughs> this is going to sound strange but my sister is also an accountant and I don't know if it's an accountant thing but her belief is that the book should always balance and all things being equal, the simplest answer is usually the right one. Um, and she lives her she lives her path. She lives her life by the path and goes. A straight line doesn't deviate. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. And you and you work in that way. Um, you have been very vocal in New Zealand, um, and and I'm a, a supporter of your views. And what qualities you feel a shihan, a sensei, a teacher, a coach should be so. For you, Sensei, are you able to give us the your your rundown on what you believe a senior practitioner should be in terms of how they how they are with their students? Um, uh, what we do to role model is it an important? I mean, for you, what are the qualities you would hope that senior Sensei would seek to emulate in their students and have in themselves? Okay, um, I suppose my, my view is, is quite simply we are more a, a servant of the students rather than the student's servant of the sensei, okay? We are there to guide and encourage them and to pass our knowledge onto them, okay? Um, and in that we are really um, selfish, okay? We're not asking for accolades or anything. We, we will achieve that through the success of our students. And they become our, our benchmark, our, our torch, if you will. Um, there are too many who work the other way. They want the adulations of their students. They want the students to conform to their um, demands. And, and really abuse that position that Sensei gives them, okay? And, and, it, and rightly or wrongly, a lot of people have taken that, that Sensei attitude of loyalty and unforgiven um, 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 servitude to based on militaristic sort of concepts. Mm. And and it's been borrowed, in, I suppose, in the Japanese setting from... And it is a mainland Japanese setting. It's not an Okinawan setting. They're, they're totally different. And, and people don't quite get that. In mainland Japan, they had to adopt those, those traditional formulations based on samurai culture, which is a militaristic culture. For that time, that, that time in, 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 in history when Japan wanted that nationalistic, militaristic approach, okay? 
And that's permeated through in lots of different martial art groups. And people think that was the essence of a sensei in karate. And I say, no, that was wrong. In Okinawa, it is a different concept. Mm. It is a concept of, yes, you are the head, but you are nurturing the people underneath them. You have that humility, you have that moral character that sets you as an example, but you are selfish. You are giving yourself to your students. Mm. Mm. And that is where a lot of people, in my view, have gone wrong. Mm. They have used that position to benefit themselves mm. at the expense of their students. Mm. And we've seen a lot of that. And, and it's not just within um, certain circles within karate in New Zealand. It's in other areas. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I find that unfortunate and not within the culture of karate. Mm. Sensei, when you when you're talking about that, you know one thing that sort of tends tends to um, to jump to to mind. If I can give you sort of something, which um, there's a there's a concept in in, in the Māori culture um, and in the Samoan culture of, of which I am both. Um, in Māori, we, the word for chief is a rangatira, and rangatira is made up of two words. Raranga means to weave, and tira means people. So it's about weaving people, not owning them. Um, and in Samoan, there's a saying which in English says, first service, then honour. Um, and, uh, you know, when you talk about that, it's really heartening to know there's people out there um, who are upholding those values, Sensei. I mean, I've certainly appreciated the impact that you've had on my karate and how I view it. Um, your support of athletes, your support of, um, you know, with... with really having nothing to gain. I mean, aside from the millions of dollars that I'm funneling into your account a week um, from my offshore Swiss, Swiss bank accounts, um, I, I'd like to invite you back to do a part two at some point, Sensei, but um, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, and we're, we've, you've got exactly one minute to have a, have a uh, final word, Sensei. Yeah, okay. Well, look, karate is meant to be shared. That's it. It's meant to be a shared experience, shared knowledge. Um, there's been too much of, of us and not enough we um, or I. You know, uh, we, we need to think more about um, it as a wider community and share the, the, the beautiful knowledge and information of, of karate. Um, it's, it's not for one person to control. It's for everyone to enjoy. So, you know, you guys, you hear that from uh, Sensei, uh, you know, karate is something to share, not to control, not to own, not to be something which um, uh, you use, we use to um, pump up our, my huge ego. Um, and it is huge, man. It's huge. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, Sensei, again, thank you so much. I, hopefully we can find time to, um, hopefully you can find time to jump on the podcast again. It's been such an honour to have you. I could honestly keep going. Um, thank you for making time guys what I'm going to do is going to put a link to Sensei's Facebook page so you can contact him directly um, and thank you so much for taking the time to listen so I'm Sensei's looking at me like yes he's going to come back and I've got to try and find 6.5 million dollars thanks so much guys thank you Sensei and we'll talk soon thank you thank you